Okay, so everyone should have the handout, Voting and I know it's uh, posted online, so you all can follow online as well, whether you're with us live by the live stream or with our Zoom, or later joining us for the recording. Great to have you with us for this uh, final of our series for this spring semester uh, of 2021, Big Picture Overview of the Old Testament, Understanding Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah and his book, Isaiah, in its Old Testament context and really in its New Testament context as well. Tonight, part 14, we're really on part 13 for two weeks because I just continued last Wednesday after doing a little over half an hour of some reporting and explanations regarding the current situation in Israel and Palestine. Then, you know, we pulled out of contemporary events back to the continuing Bible study of putting David on the map. So we've really spent uh, two and a half Wednesdays of May looking at putting David on the map in preparation for turning to God's covenant with David and with David's son and with David's seed and with David's house. All these things circle around each other. So tonight we are going to look at uh, David and God's covenant with David. I want to begin by pointing out something that we can return to. You know, we'll probably pick up on David when we return to the Bible study because honestly, we only have, you know, hey, just one little session tonight to look at the Davidic covenant. Uh, there are things we'll continue to review with the Davidic covenant. Of course, we've already introduced Davidic covenant before in this Wednesday study as well as on Sunday mornings. But I do want to begin with a separate preface, which is the fact that David and Solomon together uh, are uh, prophetic types pointing to Jesus. So just to remind you of that big picture relationship. It, it does intertwine with the covenant, uh, but it's also something above, beyond, and around the covenant, which is the fact that David and then his son Solomon together are types of the coming true king and Messiah, Jesus. And I say that because Solomon does some things that a classic archetypal king would do all to himself. But as God puts the brakes on David, David is not the one who is able to build the temple okay, unto the Lord. So he doesn't build the religious house. And in ancient times, the classic archetypal, you know, founder of a nation and a people would, would do all of those things if you're really setting up a kingdom. God specifically prohibits and, and stops David from doing that because, you know, famously, David has blood on his hands. The other thing that David does not do, and, and really this is kind of a, a result of who David is and what happens in his sin, is that David does not have a period, although David rests from his enemies uh, externally, David gets himself into trouble and conflict internally. And instead of being the wise old king, David has a lot of trouble from his middle age onward. And so Solomon is able to fulfill the role of the wise judge and king kind of par excellence. Uh, but as we've already noted, and you know, 
Solomon doesn't stay at that level very long. Nevertheless, he is the big wise king who is in a stabilized kingdom. So the two of them together kind of pair. They, they, uh, Solomon fulfills some things that David never gets to experience or achieve at the level you might have expected. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're basically coming from where we left off last week, 2 Samuel chapter 6, you would say, okay, these next things are going to happen. David's still young. He's still the golden boy. He's established his capital. He's brought in the Ark of the Covenant. So over the next 20 years, surely he's going to get to have all these things I just mentioned that you kind of have to wait on Solomon for. Okay. So that being said, David is, though, the archetypal and the type of the warrior king, uh, which is part of what Jesus is going to be. Um, David is the warrior king prevailing over seemingly invincible enemies. Of course, most famously, it's what put David on the map. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, and you all know the story of David and Goliath, right? So he's the warrior king against a seemingly invincible evil foe who is in opposition to the Lord, and that's Goliath. That, of course, is a huge prophetic type. I mean, that's basically kind of the story of the Bible in one way, okay? So, and David represents that, and ultimately, of course, Jesus goes against a much more fierce foe than Goliath and defeats him. Uh, we also have David as the, um, you know, so anyway, he, he defeats. David also goes through great humiliation, internal betrayal, even family betrayal, right? And uh, who, who else deals with betrayal within his own family that we know in the New Testament? Jesus, right? Okay. Um, so you got Judas and you got his own family early in Jesus' ministry rejecting him. Okay, this is all kind of circling back around, reminding us of the typing and the prophetic typing that's going on with David back in David's story. Then you have David as the poet of worship and the priest-like king. Remember, I made a big point about this, that the Melchizedek story links through David. You don't see that linking. Well, you see it linking somewhat with Moses, but you definitely see it with David because David is an outright king, and he is a priest-like king or a king who acts like a priest in several ways. He is the great worship leader of Israel, even though he's not acting officially as the priest. Um, he is the great poet you know, of the Psalms and the liturgy of Israel. And he also, and we looked at this last week, uh, and I think the previous Wednesday too. Yeah, yeah, y'all have heard this from me several times, but I made a big deal of the fact that when David uh, brings the ark into Jerusalem, David attires himself as a priest and acts as one of the, among the Levites and the priest, bringing the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem. So uh, you can see, I've, I've noted that highlight that we looked at last week. You know, when we look at Samuel, who is priest slash judge slash prophet, in 1 Samuel 2.18, 
What do we read? Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. Okay? What do we read about David? When David brings the Ark of the Covenant into his capital city that he now wants to be the holy city, Jerusalem. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing what? Yeah! A linen ephod. Um, and then 1 Chronicles 15.27. Parallel passage from 1 Chronicles. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as also were the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers, and Chenaniah, the leader of the music of the singers. So David is not just coming in as a king, he is coming in like a priest, a holy man. Everybody see that? that that's supposed to really get your attention, and that then again, is linkage back to Melchizedek, the king of Salem or Jerusalem, who is also the priest of Jerusalem, and Jesus, who is going to be not only the king, but also the true priest, replacing the provisional priesthood. Okay? He's the one who's going to be the sacrifice and offer the sacrifice. He is the one who can truly mediate on our behalf before God. He is the one who actually has the position of royal divinity at the right hand, but intercedes for us in that position. His priesthood never ends, and his sacrifice is perfect and does not need to be repeated or improved upon. All that stuff going on here. So you got David as a key linkage uh, prophetic typing there. So I know I've talked about this before. I just wanted to... And anyway, then you go on and David wore again. What does it say again? A linen... It's like, folks, are y'all paying attention to this? You know, the Bible, the Bible writers are saying. I really want you to catch this. Okay, now then Solomon. Um, Solomon, you know, his very name means peace, right? Um, and... He is the Prince of Peace. And although certainly he expands his territory and has some conflict, he's basically reigning in peace as a wise king who gets to enjoy the expansion of the kingdom that David forged and now is ruling in a reign of wisdom and peace. He is a wise counselor and Prince of Peace. Now, you know how I'm periodically connecting the this with Isaiah and the prophecies of Isaiah. Is there something that we sing about and talk about around Advent and Christmas time that this rings a bell with anyone on? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what are some of his names? You know, Wonderful Counselor, right? Okay. Prince of Peace. So y'all see that. See, David, David really is not, does not move in that realm very much or very well. Solomon does, so they're kind of a combo thing here. But on the other hand, Solomon is clearly not going to be able to fulfill, at least at anywhere near an everlasting or eternal level, uh, what's talked about with David's son. He does do one dimension of what the covenant talks about with David's son, but he does not do the big, the big long-term dimension of it. I mean, he builds a temple, 
but that temple is torn down. You know, he carries on a line of kings, but that line of kings ends up going very corrupt, and it actually doesn't last on the throne long term. So we clearly are going to need someone greater than Solomon, you know, if this stuff is all going to play out. And we obviously need someone who is greater, infinitely greater in wisdom than Solomon. And you may remember that a certain prophet who comes from Nazareth um, castigates the people during his uh, ministry because he says someone far greater and wiser than Solomon has appeared and uh, the queen of Sheba is going to call you guys out at the judgment because uh, y'all missed it. And that's Jesus, okay? So, um, now let's move. Any questions on that? That's pretty interesting stuff, right? Okay, so that's, that's just some prophetic typing and some things that are running through the scriptures here. But let's move on. Any questions online? Are we good? Let's move on to looking toward the covenant. As I said in the next lines of the notes, um, God's covenant promises to David and to David's seed, to David's son, and to David's house are central to the New Testament. Central to the New Testament. And I do not just simply mean the book that is God's word on the New Testament. I mean the New Testament itself, the new covenant itself. And here's just a few examples. We have already highlighted this in our Sunday sermons, in my recent Sunday sermon on Isaiah 55. And I've come back to this passage also, but let's just remind ourselves of this new, this prophecy about the new covenant and what's going on with the connection with David. Come, this is this incredible invitation that I said is like God condescending to act like someone who's selling food in the marketplace or giving away food in the marketplace. It's it's staggering that God would would come down and say, "Come on!" But this is this is the language that Isaiah is using here. This is the vision Isaiah has. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, notice, although this prophecy is clearly, directly, initially addressed to Jewish people, do you get any impression from the language that it's limited to? Does it say, come all you children of Jacob? Does it say something like that? Does it say, come all you inhabitants of Jerusalem? Judahites. No. It seems like a pretty wide open invitation, doesn't it? The way it's written and the way God seems to be extending it. Come everyone. Would you say that's only Jews? Or only Jews, people who get thirsty when they don't have water? No, everybody, right? So this is like a pretty wide open invitation, apparently. Uh, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your end, come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you 
an everlasting covenant. Now, we've talked about this on Wednesday night. I've talked about this, like I said, I did a sermon on this, and we also did some reverberation and other sermons, I think, on this too. So this Barit Olam, this everlasting covenant, is incredible. What is it? What's it based on? My hesed, my steadfast, sure love for David. So David is central like a linchpin. God's love for David is this linchpin for, this is a new covenant prophecy going on from Isaiah. And the covenant with David is foundational to the new covenant, you know, invitation and promise. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples. Now I can tell you right now, peoples in the Old Testament, that means peoples who are beyond the Jews. So it was pretty obvious in the first verses. Now it is flat out obvious. We are talking about peoples who extend beyond simply exclusively the Jewish people or Jacob or Israel. Okay? So that's pretty... and, And it's coming through David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call... Now it's like God's talking to David or whoever this is who fulfills this role of David to bring the good news to all the peoples. Who do you think that might be, by the way? Jesus, right? So um, God is now speaking to him or to those of us who will serve him. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So this is all running through David and God's love for, steadfast love for David. So you all see that? Okay. Now, so what I'm saying is God's covenant promises to in relationship with David are central and essential to the gospel, to the New Testament, and to our opportunity of salvation. Um, now then, let's go over to the literal, you know, books of the New Testament and just pull out a couple highlights. I've already pulled out previously uh, some highlights from Matthew and also from Luke 2. Tonight, I just threw in... Romans 1, 1 through 4. This is from the Apostle Paul. And then another passage from Luke. This one is, in addition to the ones I used, I think, a couple weeks ago. This is Luke 1, 32 and 33. So, Romans 1. This is the way Paul opens the most magisterial of his letters, the most theologically magisterial of his letters. Romans 1, 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, he's given you his introduction there, his self-introduction, and now we go into what is probably, again, Larry knows I talk about these with the men on Tuesday mornings, these creedal statements that are just reverberating a lot in Paul's letters which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. You see, I have verse 3 here bolded for you. 
for obvious reasons, uh, concerning his son, who was, what? Descended from David, according to the flesh. So in other words, this is another one of these little creedal statements that in a few words or phrases is summing up the central message of the gospel. And here, one of the little phrases is that, who is Jesus? He's the one who's descended, you know, in, from David, according to the flesh. So he is in the bloodline of David. Um, and was declared to be the son of God. So he's the son of David. Y'all get this? He's the son of David, and he's also the son of God. This is what uh, verse 4 is going to say. And he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. That's a summary of who Jesus is. And at the heart of the summary is he's descended from David in the flesh, born of a woman, born of the flesh and in the line of King David and he's also the son of God which has been declared evidently to us you know uh, in history not just cosmically but in history because God raised him from the dead in holy power by the Holy Spirit so there y'all see that so um, there's there's another one of these David connections now let's look at Luke one thirty-two. And 33. I think we looked at this a few weeks ago, but I'm just going back to it again because it is so important. Um, Gabriel is saying, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Now, what does that mean? We've got a reverse order here, by the way, from what I just read to you, okay? What does Son of the Most High mean? Does that mean he's the son of Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Is that what we're talking about? What, what does Son of the Most High mean? God, right? Okay. All right. So, Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. But wait a minute. I thought he was the Son of God, but he's also what? The Son of David, who will be given the throne. And the language here is going to pick up on this covenant promise language to David, which is the throne will not depart. The throne's going to last forever. That's what Gabriel is talking about. He doesn't just mean for the next, you know, for a little period of time, like 15 years or something like that. He's talking about the throne that does not go away. That's what that throne language means, and it's going to connect back to the covenant promises to David. Um, let me give you one more from the New Testament, which is a little more complex we're not going to get into it much. I mean, it's not that complex. I'm just saying it's not like these, these passages right here are so obvious on their face that we're dealing with the implications to us, including Gentiles, about the gospel bringing about the fulfillment of promises to David that turn out to be to all people, like Isaiah is telling us in Isaiah 55. Okay? This is not just for Jews. Y'all getting this? I mean, this is not just for Jews. This David thing and the son of David thing is not just for Jews. So um, over in Acts 15, we've got this issue of what do we do with these uncircumcised Gentiles? 
who have become believers in Christ and in fact have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They need, do we need to go back and fix them by circumcising them? And do they need to go under total kosher law? Is, are, are Jesus and the baptism of the Holy Spirit not sufficient to make sure they're good? Do we need to add some more stuff to them under the law? That's basically the question for the early church. And picking up at verse 14 of Acts 15, James is speaking. Simeon, this means Simon Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them, uh, to take from them a people for his name. Now notice what James has just said. God's already taken these people. Do you think we trump God as far as making determinations on this? No. Okay. So, and, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild. Now he's quoting, James is quoting from a prophecy in Amos. We haven't even gone over there, but I can just tell you, this prophecy from Amos, as you're going to hear, uh, has to do with the restoration of the tent or the house of David. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Now, you got to understand, he's not talking about, he's not talking about like what the Boy Scouts go out and camp at Robinson Lake in. He's talking about the, the dynasty, the house, the, okay. Um, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, James says, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And then he goes on and says they need to be under like basic Noahic, early Genesis standards. Um, so he, he does give a little bit of like guidance or restriction. But otherwise, he says, uh, just like Amos prophesied, just like the Lord said through Amos, and just like the whole Old Testament keeps saying, including Isaiah, uh, these people are in. And they're in under the restoration, y'all got to catch this, of the house of David. Y'all see that's going on? So the, the restoration of the house of David through Jesus is integrally related with the fact that we get saved because of the covenant promises God made with David. I mean, this is incredible stuff. It's just amazing. So, you know, because you would think, well, David's the big hero of the Jews. It must be all about the Jews, and it is not. The Bible's been saying that all along. The prophecies and the typing have been pointing you in this direction. And now the New Testament, uh, because of the Holy Spirit and because of what Jesus teaches, establishing the gospel, his apostles get it. And they're telling this to us in the New Testament. It's really amazing, isn't it? So that's, that's some of what's going on there. Um, I will remind you also, if you go back and listen to my sermons from the Gospel of Mark uh, from a year, year and a half ago, you may remember the sermon I did in, from Mark chapter 5 where the Canaanite woman, uh, the, she's ethnically Canaanite, she's a uh, Syrophoenician woman, Phoenician woman, 
um, Syrian Phoenician woman, uh, up, up in the region of Tyre and Sidon, she appeals to Jesus to, for Jesus to have mercy on her, to listen to her, and to bring healing to her daughter who is possessed. Now, this woman's a total pariah in her own community, and Jesus, as a Jewish prophet slash rabbi, is not supposed to be dealing with this woman at all. You're not supposed to even deal with Jewish women. Okay? And this woman has like all kinds of... If you go back and listen to my sermon, I outlined about five different reasons why Jesus is not supposed to be engaging with this woman. And Jesus says, you know, don't, don't you know I've, I've come to you know, bring God's word and grace to the house of Israel? And she says, she called, but by the way, remember this now, she calls on him as son of David. But she's not Jewish. So there's a lot of, there's a lot going on there. Inspiration-wise that God gives to her. Um, maybe she's just theologically brilliant, I don't know. Uh, but she appeals, you know, in this context, and, and then you have that, you'd have to go back and listen to my sermon, but you remember Jesus says, um, should you deny the food to the children, you know, should you give the food to the dogs when the children haven't eaten yet? You may remember this, and Jesus gets in the repartee, and I explained what's going on, because it sounds bad on its face in that initial exchange from Jesus, and he's using pup language and instead of dog language, and you have to go back and listen to that sermon. But that, that is a passage also that relates to what I just went over. So I just thought of that when I'm, we're going over this. Now, let's go on to the covenant. We'll at least introduce the covenant tonight. Maybe we come back when we resume and get into the covenant a little bit more. The Davidic covenant. Now, let me go ahead and say, and I have it in the notes here, that the word covenant, barit, is not used in the Textus Classicus of the Davidic Covenant, 2 Samuel 7. I mean, this is, you know, 2 Samuel 7, you've heard me say this countless times. Um, it's one of the three or four most important chapters, probably in the whole Bible and definitely in the Old Testament. I mean, 2 Samuel 7, you just got to know 2 Samuel 7. It's, a, it's, a, it's an Axis passage. But that being said, uh, the word covenant is not used in 2 Samuel 7. Oh, gosh, and sorry, guys, I've got a typo. That should be 2 Samuel, not 1 Samuel. Sorry, Martin had a meeting, and then he was typing out notes this afternoon, and he, he goofed up. So in that, that should say 2, 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7. I think I was thinking about 1 Chronicles. So the parallel passage is 1 Chronicles. Um, let us go... Uh, so, but, but I note here, I've got notes for you here. Notice in 2 Samuel 23, 5, in 2 Chronicles 7, 18, in Psalm 89, 3, and in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah 33, 21. And you've already heard me reflect on the fact that the language in Isaiah is covenantal. All these passages, though, the ones I've cited to you, talk about how God made a covenant with David and with his house. Okay, so... If, if we don't get it directly stated, it's obvious, though, that you're dealing with a covenant here. And you can see as we go through this. I think I will, come, I will come back to some of these other passages probably in a couple months or something. But let's just turn the page. If you turn to the back of the page, I have a few things 
a little bit of a breakout of this passage for us. And so that I don't want to fail to do this. Let me go ahead and note, and again, we can come back to this in a later study, but I've noted several things that really relate to and remind us of the fact that God's covenant with David relates back to God's covenant in a whole lot of ways with Abraham. So you can see I highlighted a few connective points for you. God promises Abraham that in his seed, in his offspring, there will be kings. And guess what? We get direct fulfillment of that with David and Solomon. And of course, it turns out, down the line, you're going to get the king of kings. It's Jesus from the same line. Okay? So that's so, and remember, David is seed. I mean, he's an offspring from Abraham. He's both biologically offspring, David is, and he's also a believer, so he's also spiritually offspring. Um, God promises Abraham, or Abram, that uh, the king's one was, you know, back to Genesis 17. Uh, the great nation promise comes at the very you know that sequence that we went over with the, the opening of Genesis 12 and uh, the command and the three promises and the second command and the second three promises, um, that Abraham will be a great nation and a father of a great nation. And Israel, under David and Solomon, fulfills that. Okay? You get that. And the key juncture of that... Um, that and a couple of these other things that I'm about, about to mention at the, at the opening of this 2 Samuel 7 passage that we're going to look, start looking at. It's a big passage, so we'll just kind of scratch the surface here. But uh, it says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So the, the impression is the nation has been established. David is triumphant. And things are going, you know, some of this stuff is... so. David, in other words, does bring the promised place and rest that God promised Abraham. Now it has happened. And the opening to this hugely important chapter that we're about to look at, 2 Samuel 7 says, yep, place, rest, it's happened. Um, Then, great name. God makes this great name promise to Abram also in Genesis 12 too. God promises to David in this covenant we're about to read. His name's going to be great. Uh, promises are key to Abraham and then to David's seed. Um, the seed is a really big deal for God's covenant promises to Abraham. You've heard me say that. You heard me say that on Sunday. The fact that um, the fulfillment of the pouring out of the Spirit, you know, happens not to Abraham, but to this ultimate seed of Abraham. And same way with David. Seed seed is important. A lot of this stuff is going to happen down the line. And which is really kind of cool if you think about it, not only for 
big picture issues like David and uh, Abraham, but also for us. You know, sometimes God's promises may not happen for us, but they may happen for our descendants. Would you rather have it all for yourself now or let your descendants have some of it? What do you think? Be good for some of the descendants to have it, right? Yeah. Um, so Abraham's seed will possess the gate gates of his enemies. Genesis twenty two seventeen, And then David will defeat enemies. God will give rest to him from his enemies. This is going to be in this chapter we're about to read. So see, I'm, I'm giving you some things to pay attention to as we read through this. All this stuff is, is connecting back and forth. There are all these parallels and or fulfillment things going on with Abraham and what God promises Abraham and what God gives to or promises David or David's seed. A special personal relationship. God has this special personal relationship with Abraham and his seed. And so also with David and his seed. Uh, let's, let's go ahead and I'll just turn back and, and look at this for a moment. Because this will get us into the next two. Yeah. Back to Genesis 17. And I will establish my covenant, verse 7, between me and you and your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, to your seed after you. I'm going to make this covenant between myself and you and between myself and your seed. And I'm going to be your God. They're going to be my people. And I will give you and your seed after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay? And I didn't even put this one down, but speaking of the land and the, and the extent of the land, Solomon fulfills what God shows and promises to Abraham later in the same passage. Solomon fulfills it as far as the land, the extent of the land. Then um, with... David and his seed, 724. And you established for your, yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So David is reciting this back to God. And then conditions of obedience. A lot of times people say, well, because it's an everlasting covenant, there are no conditions. That is not true at all uh, with Abraham or with David. And for that matter, in the New Testament. Right? Jesus says, teach them to do everything I have commanded you. Does that sound like they're conditions? Yeah. Is it a guaranteed covenant? Yes, it's a guaranteed covenant. But their expectations, right? You're in the family, but their expectations of the family, okay? So, seventeen uh, one in Genesis seventeen one, excuse me, when Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am God Almighty. What? Walk before me and be blameless." Would you say that's a minor expectation and condition? If God said to you, 
walk before me and be blameless. John, you, how are we going to do on that one? <laughs> that's a pretty serious (laughs) so um, and then also um, uh, 18 7, 18, 19 17, 18, 19 Um, this is so God affirms this everlasting covenant here and Abraham said to him oh that Ishmael might live before you and God said no but Sarah your wife will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac I will establish my covenant with you as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after you so God is very specific not only about standards but also about who who picks whom is in the covenant God um, so back over to Second Samuel Seven fourteen. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So God has real clear expectations in these guaranteed covenants. Now, let's go on and get into this. We'll at least kind of crack the ice open on taking a look at Second Samuel 7. Uh, As you can see up at the top of page 2, I've broken this out for you a little bit. Major sections here. There's 7, 1 through 3. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Kind of the prelude. Just Nathan and David chatting around and saying, sure, sounds good to me. And then God gets into the story, and it's a different conversation. Uh, Then you've got 7, 4 through 7 which is God bringing the word to Nathan the prophet. But then you also have this little transition, which is why I have that that slash mark there, because you get to 8, and God says, now this is what you're supposed to tell David. And then that runs all the way through verse 16. And then you get verse 17, which I have in parentheses. It's not major action, but it is significant because, hey, Nathan could have refused to tell David what God said but he does he tells him that's what we get noted in that one verse and then we get David's big prayer covenant response it's a prayer it's a affirmation it's a Lord you're saying this so let me repeat to you what you're saying because this is a big deal and I'm kind of amazed I'm really overwhelmed but also I do want to say that I am receiving this it's good with me okay Um, So, let's read through this. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest. Again, he's in the city of David. He's in the city of David. He's taken the city of David. He's got the Ark of the Covenant in there. Everything's good. He's the king of all Israel. The Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Back over to, just a side note, back over to chapter 5, verse 11 and following, And Hiram the king of Tyre, 
sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Because, you know, people are acknowledging him. He's got this great new house that the fancy king, you know, from the sea, from the seaport area, the Lebanese guy, uh, Hiram of Tyre, has sent down much higher level than anything the Israelites are used to. And he's got this new cedar house. David's, David's living high. So that's back from chapter 5. Now David's saying... Um, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And they probably had a toast, you know, and said, That sounds good to me. This wine is really good tonight, David. Let's have another round, you know. You are the golden boy. God has, I mean, God's blessed you so much that he even had Hiram come down and build you this house of cedar, you know, paneling. And, uh, you know, God has always blessed you. So obviously, I'm a prophet, but I don't need to check in with God on this one. This is flat out obvious. Go for it. Is that ever good for a prophet to say? What do you think? Turns out, no, right? All right, so then we get to verse 4. But that same night, God doesn't waste any time on this one. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. I'll come back to that. That's actually high praise for David. I'll probably preach on that in Isaiah, so that's just a note to you. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? You hear my emphasis there, right? That's, that's the way God is clearly meaning this. Would you, you build me a house to live in, to dwell in? Yeshab, you know, Yeshab, you, you, you make my dwelling? That's this high, high terminology there, Yeshab. Um, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Uh, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel during all those, you know, decades and stuff? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And then here's your pivot point here. Verse 8. You, you, that's a transition in the Hebrew there. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. Thus, so we've just moved upstairs on the Lord's... This is when you get this, thus says the Lord, you're really supposed to pay attention. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the heavenly armies. I took you from the pasture... From following the sheep, that you should be prince. That that Nazi term that's that's specifically used there is not king, prince, over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. Remember how I highlighted that already? So name Abraham, name David. I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place, just like he promised Abraham. He's going to do it through David. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Which is interesting because they're already in Israel, right? But this is, this is the way God is seeing it, the way God is promising it. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. God promised that type of thing to Abraham, and now God's going to give it to and through David. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. So remember, you've heard me say this a bunch of times before, you know, there's a play on terminology here. Bait, they specifically are not using the Hebrew term for temple per se. Okay? They're using the broader term bait, house. And house means, can mean a physical house. It can mean a dynasty. It can mean a kingdom. It can mean all those things. It can mean a family, right? And so you've got all these. So God, God is saying, you want to build me a building with cedar? I'm going to build you an everlasting dynasty and family that will have no end. That's, that's what's going back and forth here. But there, you, you know, the term used is bait or house. Um, um, I will make you a house, end of verse 11. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast, my hesed, uh, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, Shaul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, there's that word again, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Remember, I pointed out last time, this is, this is a vision. Nathan gets visions, like all the prophets get visions. Like when God spoke to, when God was so upset, I talked about this, I think the last time, over in Numbers, you know, when God's so upset because Aaron and Miriam are questioning, and the people are questioning Moses, and God says, you're questioning the one I talk to face to face? Now, in the future, you're going to have prophets um, and, and the ones that are real are going to get visions and dreams from me. But this guy, Moses, he deals with me face to face. Now, he doesn't actually like, like stare at God's face. We've already been through that before. But the point is, every prophet, all the way until when Jesus comes, ha, you know, operates out of when the Lord speaks to them, it's, it's, it's visions and dreams. And Isaiah gets a bunch of visions. Isaiah gets awesome visions. Isaiah gets visions of, you know, the heavenly throne room and everything. Um, but that being said, so that's what's going on here. So it's a vision. And Nathan speaks it to David. Why would Nathan not speak this to David? I pointed out that it's, it's, it is, it's a minor, it's like a, a transitional verse there. And I put it in parentheses because it's not the major action of the, of the covenant, but I do want to point that out. Would, would you tell the king that God is um, redirecting him? King can cut your head off. What do you think? 
Have you ever brought a word of prophecy against someone in power? Anybody in the room? Anybody on Zoom? <laughs> Somebody who can dismiss you as their court prophet? Or worse than that, you know, not just kick you and your family out on the street, which could happen. He could also have his head cut off. There's reasons Nathan may not relay this message, right? Why would Nathan relay the message? What would be reasons to relay the message? As God says in the grand theological scheme of things, David is a prince. Who's the king? God. Um, whom do, what the wisdom literature repeatedly says... Um, and, and, of course, it's the, it's the axis point of, of the, the, the theological and ethical axis point of Proverbs, Proverbs 1-7. Um, the fear of the Lord, we're studying this on Sunday morning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So what's the, the foundation for making wise decisions? Is it that I'm really smart up here? Not necessarily. What is the foundation? The fear of the Lord. So why would Nathan tell David? Because he works for God, and if he's going to make anybody mad, the one he does not want to make mad, it's God. Every decision we have in life, the, the smart thing to do, and you can have an 80 IQ, and know this, this is not a question of IQ, right? Is, is this going to upset God or upset other people? Now, the, the weird thing is people who are actually very smart worry all the time about upsetting people instead of upsetting God, right? I don't want to make my children mad. I'm just trying to keep a good relationship with them. I don't want to make my boss mad. I don't want to make my neighbors mad. She's very popular. If I, if I get on her bad side, all my other friends will cut me off. I better not upset her. And with the, anyway, so Nathan makes the right decision. So that's, a, that's just a wisdom note <laughs> in the midst of this. Uh, and probably, um, let me just encourage you, if God speaks to you, you probably better follow through with whatever message he tells you to give. Yes. Mm -hmm. Christians are being intimidated not to say anything right now. And with social media being so bad, it makes it worse, doesn't it? So anyway, that's, that's the... And then what happens is we'll get to this next time. Uh, we got to take a break for the summer. Uh, so we'll figure out when we're coming back. But we're not going to meet in June, I can tell you that. But we'll come back to this and come back, look at this covenant a little bit further look at some other passages that relate to it. I've listed some of the other passages that relate to it. And look, of course, at David's response. Uh, there's also, there's a lot of packing going on here with the fact that at one level you've got Solomon as the son or the seed of David, who's kind of going to temporarily fulfill some of this, but it's clearly not going to last, like I've already indicated. So you have to look for, if this is for real from God, there clearly must be another son in the line of David. Um, and you could say, well, yeah, and one thing is Solomon gets disciplined because he sins, 
And obviously, the ultimate king doesn't sin, but the ultimate king does get disciplined for our iniquity, and he takes it on himself. So some people read this as, well, that doesn't apply to Jesus. I don't necessarily read that like that, because um, obviously Jesus doesn't sin, but the New Testament tells us God made him to be sin in our place. So... That, so, in other words, we can look at that a little bit, too, with, this, uh, with these covenant promises. But isn't it just amazing how God raised up and called this man David? And everything flows so much through what God has planned for the kingdom that he foresees and the house and the ultimate descendant of David, who is Jesus. So you can see why, even beyond what the Jews ever imagined, why the concept of the Messiah in the line of David is so huge. So very exciting, right? Did y'all learn a lot about David? And you see how this relates to Isaiah in the New Testament, yeah? Okay, well, it's been great having you guys here in person, great having all y'all that joined on Zoom and on Facebook, and I appreciate your going through the Word with us and learning, and we'll, uh, we'll pick this back up after a little summer break, okay? All right, let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we give thanks for your Word, your call, your amazing gospel promises through David, and ultimately through the, the true son of David. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name and we rejoice in who you are as our king and priest and the true and ultimate prophet, the very word of God, and you bring salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.